This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am here to help. I'll supply one story that grabbed my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter 1, Lesson 12. The reading is First Chronicles. We'll start with my first impressions. I'm on a Bible marking program this year that includes me putting a box in pencil around every single name I find. So First Chronicles gave me a minor case of carpal tunnel syndrome. But every one of these names was important. Every one of these names was recorded by the various tribes, not just Judah, by the way, which is the only real tribe that sustains itself at this point, and perhaps Levi. There are elements of all of the tribes that had survived these two captivities, the Assyrian captivity for the northern tribes and ultimately the Babylonian captivity for the southern tribes. And as the nation is repopulating, as they are going back in the time of Ezra, it's important that everybody knows who they are and that everyone knows what role they play in this new land, in this new venture. Everybody brings their story. Everybody brings their family. Everybody brings their records so that they can feel like they're a part of things, and they are a part of things. It's not just the line of David that this is all about. This is about the nation as a whole. If you're a partaker of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're a part of this plan. You're a part of this nation. And it should be a tremendous encouragement to those who were going back in the days of Ezra, or even going back earlier than that, in the days of Zerubbabel, to know that God has a plan for you, and that whatever plans lay in wait for the future, you can be part of those too. I'm actually trying to limit my conversation this week to this section in the front part of First Chronicles that's so easy to miss, so easy to skip. It seems like it has absolutely no relevance to us. But it had tremendous relevance for the people of the day. And I find it interesting that there are these little bitty stories that are found in First Chronicles that aren't found anywhere else. They don't seem to have anything to do with anybody else, but yet are part of the story that's being preserved for us. One of them is in chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10, where a man named Jabez is described. The text says that Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, because I gave birth to him in pain. Now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, oh, that you would greatly bless me and extend my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it would not hurt me. And God brought about what he requested. You may remember a book that was circulating and quite popular there for a while, The Prayer of Jabez, which was a book written essentially to defend the idea of harvesting from God all of the physical blessings you possibly could, trying to get rich in this life, the health and wealth gospel, you might say, which is missing the point of the Jabez story. Jabez clearly is not praying simply so that he could be wealthy. Remember, in this period of time, the families of the people of God were trying to drive out their enemies. And they had been, in many places, unsuccessful in doing so. It seems more likely that Jabez is praying that he finds success, ultimately spiritual success, in his efforts to serve God in the land, that God would empower him to do what God is asking him to do. And that's a prayer that we are encouraged to pray at all times, in all situations. It may seem a little bit silly for us to ask God for him to help us do what he has already told us he's going to do, but we find prayers like that all over the Bible. 
And I think Jabez is yet another example of that. I'll throw in another story too. In chapter 7 and verse number 20, the sons of Ephraim were, and there are various names that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but there are two named Ezer and Iliad toward the end, who the men of Gath who were born in the land killed because they came down to take their livestock. Their father Ephraim mourned for many days, and his relatives came to comfort him. Then he went into his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Beria, because misfortune had come upon his house. And then there are descendants of Beria described there as the verse goes on, including and particularly Joshua there at the end of it. This passage has a lot of pronouns, and so it's a little difficult to figure out exactly what's going on. But it seems like the men of Gath came to take the livestock of Ezer and Iliad, which is to say the livestock of Ephraim, during the life of Ephraim, which is to say while the Israelites were still in captivity, or at least still in Egypt. We can debate about whether the children of Ephraim are going to Canaan into Philistine territory or the Philistines are coming to the land of Goshen. But in any case, it goes poorly for the family of Ephraim. But as is always the case, God is able to take horrible circumstances and turn them for good. And as a result of this, Joshua comes in to the family of Ephraim, surely the greatest Ephraimite who ever lived. There's a couple of examples here of God dealing with everyday circumstances, things that don't seem to have anything to do with anything, but that God is there. He's watching us. He cares about what is going on in our lives, even the lives of the so-called little people. We can't get away from him even if we want to, and we sure don't want to. The one verse that grabbed my attention is, again, uh, kind of an unusual one, I suppose, in chapter 9 and verse 20, we read, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, was supervisor over them previously, that is to say the people of Levi, and the Lord was with him. Phineas is most famous for the incident in Numbers chapter 25, where he ran through a man and his Midianite wife with a spear in an effort to stave off a plague that had come upon the people of God because they were intermarrying with foreign wives. Phineas is ultimately going to become the high priest of Israel. The tribe of Levi was known ever since Levi himself for their hot temper, you might say. And it seems on the surface that Phineas just can't control his. But the text in Numbers chapter 25 and the text here also indicate clearly that Phineas was a worker of God. He was a worker of righteousness. God approved of his actions. In fact, the text here that says the Lord was with him is a rather unusual phrase in this context. It's not said of anybody else. Does that mean that perhaps Phineas was inspired, that he was carrying out God's will under the force of inspiration? He didn't write a book like most of the people we think about being inspired, but maybe his activity was as a result of God speaking to him directly and encouraging him to take up arms and act forcefully in the cause of righteousness. He comes up in another situation also in the book of Joshua. In Joshua 22, Phineas is at the forefront of the near civil war that happens. Remember, the Transjordan tribes had built this great altar, and it was seen as a rebellion against God of heaven. And Phineas is the one who takes up arms and brings the people of the other tribes to war with Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And quickly, the Reubenites and the other tribes insist, no, this is not an actual altar. This is simply a memorial to help us remind ourselves of what's going on back in Jerusalem, to fortify our connection with the other tribes instead of separating from the tribes. And Phineas and the rest accept that. 
The easy explanation is that Phineas is just flying off the handle, that he jumps to conclusions unnecessarily, and maybe that's true. Or maybe Phineas is, again, a worker of righteousness willing to go the extra mile, even at the expense of the lives of his brethren, to make sure that God is being honored. Maybe the Reubenites and the rest of them are coming up with a cover story at the last minute because they realize they've stepped out of line. Remember, the Transjordan tribes are the ones that did not accept the land of Canaan that was being offered to them. Bad things tend to be associated with these tribes, so let's not jump to the conclusion that they were, in fact, righteous and misunderstood. Maybe Phineas saw through their actions easier than we give him credit for. In any case, surely one of the underrated heroes of Bible history. The word I came back to again and again is family. Families are complicated. Families are difficult. There's war, there's fighting. It seems like there's nobody we love more, and it seems like there's nobody we fight with more than our family. We touched on already one example of internal conflict, and there are many, many others. Actually, the tribes were at war with one another far more often than they were at peace. But when it comes down to it, hopefully at least, there is enough connection to help the family realize how special family is. When the people of God don't get along, when the people of God fight with one another more than they fight with anybody else, and sometimes suffer consequences for that, this is a learning experience, or should be. It certainly was with the nation of Israel. After Assyria, after Babylon, we're starting over again, much, much smaller than we ever have been before. Entire tribes are gone at this point, or virtually gone. Hardly anything left of the nation of David and Solomon. But God is still with the family. And if we look hard enough, we see him. As Zerubbabel led the people back from Babylonian captivity, as Ezra leads another group of them back in his day, those people have another opportunity to draw near to family, to remind themselves what family is all about, to overcome squabbles that ultimately didn't amount to anything. The more we realize what connects us, the easier it is to stay connected. And ultimately, the nation of Israel was not about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation of Israel was about God. That's why Rahab became a part of the nation. David himself had Moabite blood as far as that goes. Any number of other examples of people who found themselves in the presence of God and decided to join themselves to this hope, to this dream however incompletely or inadequately they understood it. The family of God works the same way today. The more we connect with one another, the more we see commonality in Jesus, the easier it becomes to distance ourselves, to separate ourselves from the evil of the world, the families that are out to get us, and build up God's family, build up our part in it. And hopefully God will give us the strength to do that before it gets quite as disastrous as it got for the nation of Israel. Hard times are behind us, and hard times are almost certainly facing us. But with the help of brethren, and certainly with the help of our Heavenly Father and our Savior Jesus Christ, we can survive and we can thrive. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading Second Chronicles and finishing up quarter one. God bless. Keep reading.